If you have uh, ever read or seen the play Hamlet, uh, then you'll recall that it contains a play within the play. Uh, that play, within the play, uh, Hamlet is called The Mousetrap. Uh, the goal of the play within the play is to determine, is for Hamlet to determine whether or not his, his uncle Claudius was guilty of his father's death. Uh, that was Hamlet's goal for the play. Uh, but to achieve that goal, he wanted the play to, to replay what he suspected had already happened. Uh, in other words, the mousetrap was a smaller scale version of what was taking place in Hamlet. And I, I bring this up because in some ways I think this is what takes place with the book of Ruth in the storyline of the Bible, in the story of the Bible. Instead of a play within a play, we have a story within a story. We have a story of redemption nestled inside the, the larger overarching story of redemption. Yes, the, the book of Ruth is a love story between Ruth and Boaz, but ultimately it tells the story of God's love for God's people. Unlike Hamlet and the mousetrap, the events in the book of Ruth really happened. Uh, redemption really does come for Naomi and Ruth through Boaz. And in God's kindness in the story of the Bible, redemption really does come in and through Jesus Christ. This is what the conclusion of the book of Ruth calls us to consider. That redemption has come. As we begin our study this morning, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter, verses 1 to 24. Uh, and I believe, uh, sorry, 22, verses 1 to 22. Uh, if you're following along in one of the Bibles provided, you can find uh, that page, um, find that passage on page 224, 224. And while you're turning there, let me just remind you a little bit about the background for the book and what's happened uh, in this great story so far. So what's, what's led us to chapter 4? Well, in chapter 1, we learned that a famine had fallen on the land. And that it had even reached Bethlehem. This led Naomi and her husband and family, her sons, to leave Bethlehem. They left, they went and they settled in Moab. Naomi's sons married uh, Moabite women. But then tragedy struck. Naomi's husband died. Tragedy struck yet again. Both of Naomi's sons died. And Naomi returned to Bethlehem with nothing but her faithful daughter-in-law, Ruth. Naomi went away full, but she came back to Bethlehem feeling empty. And as we're waiting for Naomi to recognize what she has found in Ruth, chapter 2 opens and gives us great hope as a Redeemer is introduced to us. Ruth and Boaz meet. They eat. And then they go their separate ways. Ruth and Naomi were blessed by Boaz's generosity. He provided food for them. Ruth labored in Boaz's field through both the barley and the wheat harvests. But as the harvesting season came to a close, Ruth and Naomi remain unredeemed. They have food, but they do not have the safety of redemption. Naomi is a widow, which means that her husband's land, the land that he owned, and her husband's line... His name are in danger of being lost. If no one redeems Ruth and Naomi, then Elimelech's name will perish from history. And his land will go to someone outside of the family. 
In Ruth chapter 3, the chapter we studied last week, we see that Naomi developed a plan to propose that Boaz redeem and marry Ruth. We also see Boaz promise to do just that, if he can. For another man still stands in the way. The chapter concludes with Naomi urging Ruth to be patient while they wait for the conclusion of the matter. We've been, as it were, left on the edge of our seats. What will happen? Ruth has safely made it home. But will Boaz secure Ruth and Naomi's redemption? Well, let's find out as we look at chapter 4 today. We're going to study Ruth chapter 4 in three sections under three headings. Redemption, restoration, and the hand of God in history. You thought I was going to come up with a third R, but I couldn't think of one. So that's what we get. Redemption, restoration, and the hand of God in history. Let's begin with our first point, redemption. Uh, And as we do, we're going to read Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. Now... Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So, when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malhalon, also Ruth the Moabite the widow of Mahalon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel, May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. Well, in these verses, 
Some of the most significant problems that Ruth and Naomi have faced are being resolved. The, the overarching theme of these verses is undoubtedly redemption. In verses 1 and 2, Boaz gathers the men necessary to legally secure Ruth and Naomi's redemption. In verses 3 through 6, Boaz proposes that the nearer redeemer purchase Naomi's land and marry Ruth. He, he obviously doesn't feel like he can do that. Uh, so in verses 7 to 10, jo Boaz joyfully steps forward to keep the promise that he made to Ruth in chapter 3, verse 13. And finally, in verses 11 and 12, 11 through 12, a, a blessing and a prayer is pronounced over Boaz's redemption of Naomi and marriage to Ruth. And if that's what happens, then what is happening in all of this? Several things are happening. First and foremost, Boaz is taking care of business, right? He, he told Ruth that the night before, he told Ruth that he'd take care of it. And that's exactly what he's doing. First thing in the morning, Boaz makes his way to the gate and he takes care of his promise that he made. We should all certainly seek to make good on our promises as quickly as possible, just like Boaz is doing here. But in reality, there's only so much Boaz can do. Boaz can go to the gate, but he can't you know, text the Redeemer email and say, hey, can you meet me at the gate? That's why that word behold is there in verse 1. Did you notice that? It reminds us that while Naomi and Ruth and Boaz all have their part to play, it's not going to come together without the work of God. This word behold, it turned up earlier in the book of Ruth in chapter 2, verse 4, chapter 3, verse 8. Both of those instances are, are occasions of surprise. Something surprising happens. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 4, we're surprised that Boaz turns up to meet Ruth for the first time. We read that word, behold, this word behold here in, in chapter 4, verse 1. We're now surprised to see that the nearest Redeemer has turned up to meet Boaz. Who could orchestrate such a meeting on the very morning that Boaz is seeking to redeem Ruth and Naomi? Only the same God who sent a famine to send Naomi to go and get Ruth. Only the same God who sent word to bring Naomi and Ruth back to Bethlehem. Only the same God who sent Ruth to Boaz's field, just as it so happened. Only the same God uh, who could so delicately orchestrate a marriage proposal in the dark of night with the depth of love churning in the hearts of Ruth and Boaz. Though Boaz is hard at work gathering the nearest Redeemer and the men of the city, making sure a legal transaction could take place, so God was already at work making sure that His great plan of redemption succeeded. Don't you love how Boaz kind of totally and completely set up the nearest Redeemer? That's what he does. Boaz, he must have known this man. He must have known his heart what he loved, he negotiates in two stages. First, he plainly offers this no-name redeemer the right of first redemption. In the first round, Boaz simply tells him that uh, Naomi is selling her field, which the man is happy to buy. But as soon as this no-name redeemer bites on Boaz's offer, so he says, yep, I'll buy it, Boaz tells the man that this also means he must marry Ruth. And he must continue the family line. What's, what's going on in the midst of all of this? Well, we thought about this a little bit when we studied the second half 
of Ruth chapter 2, when the idea of redemption was first explicitly brought up in the book. Uh, if you remember that study, you'll remember that at the simplest level in the Bible, uh, to redeem something or someone would be to, to rescue or to extract something or someone from a precarious situation. From Leviticus chapter 25, we learned that through an economic transaction, people or land could be redeemed. Another form of practice of redemption in the Mosaic Law was the practice of redeeming a family line that had fallen by the wayside and was in danger of extinction. That's what we read about uh, earlier in the service in our scripture reading from Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 5 to 10 when the, the man fails to actually redeem his brother's spouse, he gets smacked with his sandal. Uh, notice that doesn't happen here. The man gives up his sandal. Uh, he doesn't want to get smacked with it because uh, Boaz is going to redeem Ruth. Now, if, you, if you'll recall um, that reading, that, that's the simple idea that should a woman become a widow, her brother's husband or the next closest relative was to take was to take her as his wife in order to perpetuate the family name. And all of this is what Boaz is reminding the man of here in verse 5. This redemption is not simply a matter of Leviticus 25 concerning land. It's also a matter of Deuteronomy 25 concerning line. And this, this line aspect is commonly called leveret marriage. The price from the vantage point of this no-name redeemer was too steep. Why is that? Somehow he thinks that marrying Ruth and carrying on her husband's line is going to impair his inheritance. Now the, the author doesn't take time to explain to us why he, he comes to that conclusion. But what is apparent from what we've learned from the book of Ruth is that he is missing out on the chance to marry a wonderful and worthy woman. In that sense, his selfishness is leading to self-harm. Now, to be, to be honest, neither Boaz nor this near redeemer was legally bound to marry Ruth. If anyone legally had to be married, it was Naomi. But we've already learned from Ruth chapter 1 that Naomi was too old to bear children. So do you, do you see what Boaz is telling this man? This isn't just a legal obligation. This is a moral obligation. There, there's a moral responsibility that we have here. Uh, while he's saying, um, he's saying, you know, while you may not be legally bound to marry Ruth, if you redeemed Naomi's land, then the right thing to do is to marry Ruth so that the line is continued. Now remember the setup. Boaz and this man are having this conversation in public in front of the elders of the city. So is this man really going to say, you know what, I'll take Naomi's land, but I'm not going to marry Ruth. He'd look like a greedy fool if he did that. So Boaz has backed him into a corner, intentionally so, so that he would give up his right of redemption. And Boaz has already given this man an out. He's given him an escape hatch in his first offer. You'll notice there in verse 4 that the, he told the man that he will be the redeemer if the man will not. So this no-name, this guy who's really not even worth remembering, takes out, takes the out, instead of taking the worthy woman, Ruth. Now, as a fascinating side note, in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament books are arranged in a slightly different order. 
So in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth follows right behind the book of Proverbs. And do you know what the last chapter of the book of Proverbs is? It's chapter 31. And do you remember what Proverbs 31 is all about? It's all about the woman who fears God, who is a worthy woman. So if you were reading the Hebrew Bible, just kind of keep reading right on through, you'd read Proverbs 31, and you would read these words in Proverbs 31. An excellent wife, who can find? She's far more precious than jewels. And then you'd read right on into the book of Ruth. The no-name redeemer had no idea just how precious Ruth was. But Boaz did. Boaz knew that he had found an excellent woman. Boaz knew that she would be an excellent wife. And so he goes through the proper legal means to secure Naomi's redemption and Ruth's hand in marriage. Elimelech's land and line are secure. Naomi's future is no longer bleak. Ruth's hopes of having a home and a husband have been met. What a wonderful blessing from God. And the men of the city, they recognize this. And so they witness and testify to the validity of the redemption. What is more, they offer their prayers over the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. And all three uh, prayers pertain to reproduction and prosperity. In other words, they are praying that Ruth and Boaz would have many children. Uh, that is why they mention Rachel and Leah there in verse 11. And them building up the house of Israel. The idea of house will soon be linked to the idea of building up the king's house in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, which, as you'll notice, is the next books that follow. We learn about King David in those books. Notice that such a reference to building up the house of Israel is followed by the idea of acting worthily in Ephrathah and Bethlehem. What's Bethlehem? It's the city of David. You see how the subtext of this prayer, the author is encouraging us to think of offspring and royalty in one fell swoop. And the idea of acting worthily, mentioned there at the end of verse 11, actually has undertones of, of prospering and multiplying. Linked to that is the notion of building up the house, as in be fruitful and multiply. Then, of course, is the mention of Tamar and her offspring. And this mention is particularly interesting because it's somewhat similar to Ruth's situation. Like Ruth, Tamar was a Gentile. Like Ruth, Tamar was a widow who needed to be redeemed, according to Deuteronomy 25. But she was left a widow. Like Ruth, Tamar boldly acted to secure her redemption through marriage to Judah. And she bore twins. This is a blessing to Judah. For from his line, the promise of Genesis 49 verse 10 would come to pass. In Genesis chapter 49 verse 10 we read, The scepter, that's an instrument of royal authority, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That is the promise in the book of Genesis of the Messianic King. And what we're about to learn in the next few verses is that Ruth's story is linked to King David's story. No Ruth, no David. No David, no Jesus. So how, how do we apply these verses and this redemption that we see taking place here? Well, I think we ought to remember just how generous and gracious our Redeemer 
is. Like Boaz, Jesus was under no legal obligation to redeem us. But he did. Because he loves us. Just as Boaz promised to redeem Ruth, so God wrote into the storyline of the Bible a promise to redeem sinners of his own free grace. And just as Boaz made his way to the gate, so at the right time, Jesus, he made his way to earth. The cost of our redemption was his own life, and he gladly paid it. No one else could step forward to pay that cost, but he could and did. He paid it, and He called the world to witness our redemption when He declared, it is finished. An actual kind of economic declaration. It's almost like a word that you get of a receipt. It's complete and final. Jesus declared that our redemption was complete when He declared, it is finished. Brothers and sisters, let us rejoice in the gracious redemption of Jesus Christ. And let us be honest about ourselves. We're not a great catch like Ruth was. He, and yet, He still loves us and paid the price for us. And in view of His generous and gracious love, let us not cheapen the cost of His gracious redemption by continuing in our sin. Let us rejoice in His redemption and live in light of it. Well, Ruth and Naomi's redemption has been secured and now we turn to consider how from redemption comes the restoration of life. And that's our second point, restoration. And as we consider this, let's read verses 13 to 17 of chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is, worth, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to Him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, in order to see the comprehensive restoration that these verses hold out, we must once again remember the comprehensive devastation that ravaged Naomi's life. First, she had no food. Then she was bereaved and left without a husband. Then her sons were taken away through death. Now, through Ruth's marriage to Boaz, Naomi has food from Boaz's wheat and barley fields. She had no sons, but now she has Boaz and Obed. Naomi has moved from being a bitter woman to being a blessed woman. She once told the town to call her Mara, which means bitter and now they are joyfully singing God's blessings over Naomi. These verses tell us that Ruth and Boaz were married, that they had a son, that Naomi gets to hold little Obed, and that as important as Obed is to the restoration of Naomi's life, his birth was also important to the restoration of a nation in despair. 
we had little doubts that Boaz would keep his word to marry Ruth. But the promise of offspring was not as certain. In verse 13, we see that the prayers uttered in verses 11 and 12 by the men of the gates are being answered. It is not insignificant that the author mentions that the Lord gave Ruth conception. Conception is something that the Lord alone gives. Over and over and again in the Old Testament we meet this idea that it is the Lord who gives children. And in particular, sons. The Old Testament makes note of this, not because the Hebrews were sexist, but because the promise of a Redeemer in Genesis chapter 3 is the promise of a male offspring, a son. Remember in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, God promised that one day a son would be born and that he would defeat Satan and sin and death. So when we're reading this birth announcement in Ruth, we ought to be reminded that the promise of a Redeemer in Genesis 3 still lives on. The promise of a Redeemer who will fully and finally overturn sin and death. The sin and death that ravaged Naomi's life. The sin and death that has ravaged our lives. That promise of the restoration of the whole created order still lives on. And the hope, the promise of a Redeemer lives on because time and time again, the Lord gives conception where it seems unlikely. He gives conception to women in their old age to barren women, and to women who, like Ruth, who were possibly married for more than 10 years without being able to conceive, God gives conception. God really is in control of this story from beginning to end. And the women of the town, they seem to know it too. In verse 14, they bless the Lord. And in fact, verses 14 through 17 act as almost a complete reversal or restoration of Naomi's fortunes mentioned at the end of chapter 1. Bitterness is exchanged for blessing. Mourning is exchanged for joy. And Ruth, rather than being pushed out of sight and out of mind, is praised. And there are several interesting features in these verses. We've already mentioned that these women readily recognize that God is at work in the midst of a dark situation. But notice how personal they make God's work in Naomi's life. They, they tell Naomi that the Lord has not left her without a redeemer. This little baby boy is a redeemer to Naomi. And at the same time, they pray that this little boy would be a wider blessing to Israel. Doesn't that sound a lot like how we think of our relationship to Jesus? He is both our Savior and Redeemer. And he is also the Savior of the world. In verse 15, the women of the town effectively promised that this little boy would be a restorer of her life and a nourisher in her old age. And this is a particularly sweet verse because here, the women of the town, they are taking Naomi's own words from chapter 1 and using them to encourage her. In Ruth chapter 1 verse 21, Naomi told the women of the town that the Lord brought her back. That's a, a phrase of restoration. That phrase, brought her back, can also be translated to restore. So you say, the Lord restored me. So we can actually read verse 15 like this. He shall bring back your life and be a nourisher in your old age. Having seen so much death, having 
Naomi, having felt her own life, was on the brink of death, without any hope for her future. She felt as though she had nothing to live for. Along with her husband and her two sons, her dreams had died in Moab. But now this little boy had brought her back to life. And isn't that what Jesus does for sinners like us? Indeed, for in Ephesians 2, we are told that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And that God, who is rich in mercy, is pleased to raise us up, to restore us to new life in and through Jesus Christ. Friend, have you been given new life in Jesus Christ? Do you know that apart from Jesus, you are dead? Not physically dead, but spiritually dead. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone here this morning has sinned against God. We have all forsaken His good commands and have decided to live our own way rather than His way. That is what sin is. And the Bible tells us plainly that the wages, the payment that's properly due to our sin, is death. Eternal death. We are in danger of facing eternal death because we have sinned against the holy, just, and good, eternal God. In love, God sent His one and only most beloved Son to live the life that we've not lived. The life of perfect obedience to God. And on the cross, He died, paying the price that our sins deserve in order to redeem all of those who would have returned from their sins and placed their faith in Him. And three days after His death, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all that the price that He paid was that satisfied the just demands of God's law. Jesus paid the redemption price. And Jesus now calls each and every one of us to turn from our sins and to place our faith in Him. Friend, if you are here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to urge you to turn from your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ, to be redeemed by Christ, to be restored to a reconciled relationship with God and so receive eternal life. We have to first recognize that we are dead in our trespasses and sins if we are to be restored to new life through Jesus Christ. So friend, believe and trust in Jesus Christ as the Redeemer. And if you want to know more about what it means to be redeemed by Jesus, come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or family member that you came here with this morning about this good news that Jesus is the great Redeemer. Naomi, you see she has moved from fullness to emptiness and from emptiness to fullness again. And another signal that these verses are ushering in a complete restoration of Naomi is from what we saw at the end of chapter 1 is that the women praise Ruth there in verse 15. When Naomi first returned to town, she did not introduce Ruth to the women. But over time, these women have come to know that Naomi had found more than she had lost in Moab. And that declaration is made here. They declare that Ruth is worth more than seven sons. Now seven is, is of course an idealized number in Hebrew literature. So what these women are declaring is that Naomi could not have been loved more by anyone than she was loved by Ruth. Naomi has Ruth and now Obed. And so she has more than everything she had before. I don't know about you, but I was, I was, at first, I was kind of puzzled by verse 16. Why do we have verse 16? I mean, it's, it's a wonderfully sweet picture of Naomi 
holding and caring for Obed. But why do we have Naomi taking Obed into her arms? I think it gets back to this idea of a comprehensive restoration of her life. So much had been taken from her. And now she is receiving back blessings from the Lord. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, the paternal grandmother would often care for children in the household. I think that's how we understand that phrase, a son has been born to Naomi. But let's also allow that phrase, a son has been born, to ring in our ears and to call to mind the prophetic literature. Let's remember what we read in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, where Isaiah writes, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Following on the heels of this announcement that a son has been born, we're told that they named him Obed and that he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. Obed, you see, means servant. He not only served the Lord's purposes in restoring Naomi's life, but we also learn from his progeny that he served God's purposes in restoring hope to Israel in the days in which there was no hope because there was no king. Through him and his offspring, God's king, David, would come. Earlier I mentioned the order of the books in the Hebrew Bible. The order that we have here in our English Bibles is also quite appropriate. I intimated that a little earlier. Here at the end of Ruth, a son is born to a holy woman and his birth leads to David. As Ruth 1 closes and his first Samuel opens, another son is born to another holy woman. His son Samuel will be the one who will anoint David as king. And not only are the hopes and dreams of Naomi and Ruth being restored, but so is the hope of the nation of Israel. Having considered redemption and restoration, let's now turn and think about the hand of God in history. For it is God's work in history that brings about redemption and restoration. And as we consider this third and final point, the hand of God in history, read Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 to 21. Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 to 21. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. The end. That's where the book ends. Why on earth include a genealogy at the end of such a wonderful love story? This seems like an incredibly boring way to end the book. But friends, brothers and sisters, if you don't grasp the meaning and force of this genealogy, then I fear you may not grasp the force and meaning of the book of Ruth. This is a profoundly powerful way to conclude the book of Ruth. Yes, it's a list of names. And yes, this list of names is a profoundly powerful way to conclude this book because it reminds us 
that the book of Ruth is not just a story of God's love for Naomi and Boaz and Ruth, but it's a story of God's love for God's people, for you and for me. This list has ten names. It's not exhaustive. It's not meant to be. It's meant to be selective. So several generations are skipped here and there. While this genealogy is certainly meant to contain a historical record of sorts, um, it, it's, its primary purpose is didactic. The author wants to communicate. He wants to teach us something through this list of names. And, and as we think about this genealogy, I, I want us to think about just a few of the names because we don't have time to work through them all. And, and I want us to think about the genealogy's structure because its structure is communicating something to us. So as I said, uh, this genealogy, it's 10 names long. That's a nice round number. It's a complete whole kind of number. But do you, do you remember what I mentioned about the number seven earlier uh, in, in the sermon? In Hebrew literature, the idealized number seven is an idealized number. And do you know what name appears at number seven? Who's the seventh figure in this genealogy? It's Boaz. Boaz is crucially important to the book of Ruth. So it's no surprise that he's number seven. But notice who's also at the end of the list. As a result, the very end of the book. It's David. Uh, David is at one level the goal of this genealogy and the goal of the book of Ruth. And there's one more thing I want you to take in on the structure of this genealogy. Who begins the list? It's Perez. Perez begins the list. Why start there? Why start with Perez? Well, we've already been given a clue in Ruth chapter 4 verse 12 as to why the author would start with Perez. Remember, the minute the city gate had praised had prayed that Boaz and Ruth's house would be like the house of Perez. David is the pinnacle or goal of the house of Perez, with Boaz playing a similar and pivotal role in the storyline to both David and Perez. So let's put this together. Perez redeems Tamar. Boaz redeems Ruth. Here's the hope. David's going to redeem Israel from its despair. Do you see the force of that? David will redeem Israel from its despair. So you see how this conclusion, while running through history at breakneck speed, reveals the work of God. God is at work bringing about redemption after redemption after redemption. Just look at it in this list of people, what He's doing in their lives. Well, beginning near the end of the beginning of Israel's history and sweeping through the Ruth and Boaz story, rushing headlong to David, we're reminded that God is at work. And can you imagine how this would have encouraged the readers of the book of Ruth at various times in Israel's history? The book of Ruth opened in the setting of the dark days of the judges and it concludes by reminding us that God's at work. The, the readers who first picked up this book would have been freshly encouraged that God's at work even in dark days. Imagine an Israelite reading this book in exile, or even after exile, in a time that was dark, when there was no king reigning on Israel's throne. 
Imagine being an Israelite reading this book in that setting. They could have read the book of Ruth and been encouraged to remember that God did not forsake His promise to send a king, to send a redeemer. He did not leave Naomi and Ruth without a redeemer. He sent Boaz and He eventually sent David. The first readers of the book would have been encouraged to hope that maybe, just maybe, God was at work in their day too. He is not a God who forsakes His people or His promises. So they could hope and believe that maybe someday soon a son would be born who would restore the people of Israel just like Obed restored Naomi. And this is where I want us to conclude. Since we're reading this story in light of the entire story of the Bible, we need to read this genealogy in light of another genealogy. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find that on page 807. Now remember, as you're turning to Matthew chapter 1, remember that every time Obed's name is mentioned in the book of Ruth, it's shortly followed by David. Let me put that slightly differently. Um, let me, and let me bring the whole genealogy and the whole Bible into view. Just as the goal of Perez's genealogy is David, so the goal of David's genealogy is Jesus. Take a look at the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1. Notice there in verse 1 we get something of a summary. Right? Verse 1 of Matthew's Gospel. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So notice what Matthew is doing here in this first verse. He is working backward through history from Jesus to David to Abraham. He's working backward through history. Verse 1 covers the sweep of biblical history, working backward. And then the verses that follow, verses 2 and forward, cover the sweep of biblical history moving forward. So Matthew works backward, then he works forward. There, and then there's verse 16. We, we, and we could say that David's genealogy eventually, or we could say uh, eventually culminates, we could say even terminates in Jesus Christ. There in verse 16. Verse 16, And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. You notice David's mentioned there in verse 6. From that point on, we rush forward to Jesus. Now, if we were to study verses 2 through 16 closely, we would see that Matthew picks up and incorporates Ruth's genealogy in part to show that Perez redeemed Tamar, Boaz redeemed Ruth, David redeemed Israel and that Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the true Davidic king, the one who will reign on David's throne as David's greater son is the final redeemer that we've all been waiting for. Just as the book of Ruth tells us, has been telling us that the hand of God is at work in history, so Matthew in the opening of his gospel is telling us that the hand of God has been at work in history. You see, when we recognize that the story of Ruth is part of the story of the whole Bible and God's work in history, when we, when we read the book of Ruth in light of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, we come to see that the story of Ruth is not just the story of the redemption of two widows. It is part of the fabric of the tapestry that tells the story of the redemption of the whole world. 
It is a story of the redemption of Jews, Naomi, and Gentiles, Ruth. It, it is the story of redemption of all of those who have returned from their sins and placed their faith in the final Redeemer, casting themselves at His feet. The Redeemer who Boaz looked forward to, the Lord Jesus Christ. When read in light of Jesus, the story of Ruth, brothers and sisters, is the story of our redemption. Let's pray together.